I think it's good to know your strengths as well as your weaknesses so that you can lean into the former and look for help with the latter. And I am not good at a good number of things, but I think the thing that I'm worst at in life, and, and this is an unusual one, is ending phone conversations. Have you ever been on the phone with me and thought, when is it going to end? What happens? Do I just hang up? Do we die? What? For some reason, I can sense the conversation coming to a close. I want it to come to a close. The other party wants it to come to the close. It's kind of like peacefully dying after a good long life. And then I'm like, clear. And I bring it back for some reason and bring up some other thing. And I go, what am I doing? I, don't, I'm just, I get real awkward when it's time to end that conversation. And when I think about that, I think about some other drawn-out, lengthy goodbyes, including the one in Acts chapter 20, when Paul wants to say what he is quite sure is his final goodbye to the elders of the church in Ephesus, the same church he has been writing to, and we have been studying these writings now for more than a year. And in this goodbye, he goes on and on and on, and it's very tearful, it's very emotional, and then finally says, look, let's pray and then we'll part friends and we'll be praying for each other and I'll see you on the other side. And as soon as he says amen, they all say, okay, and we're going to go with you all the way to the boat. It must have been awkward. Keep that thing going. Now what do you talk about? We've already said all the big lofty stuff. Well, that reminds me a bit about my phone habits. And once in a while, my preaching habits, Luther said one of the five marks of a good preacher is that he knows when to make an end. And this might surprise you, but I always know when to make an end. It's how to make the end. I get in these circles, just like on the phone, you know, you go cyclically around and around, like you're in a traffic circle or a roundabout, as they say in, in, in England, and it, you just, I can't get to the exit. I just keep going around and around and around. I wish it was socially acceptable just to take one of those like ninja smoke bombs and just be like, and then when the smoke clears, I'm gone. Tessa's up there telling you what the next hymn is. And I, you know, I reappear in the back to offer the benediction. But having been such a close friend to these Ephesians, and having written what's a rather long epistle, I mean, we've been studying it for quite some time. It's not as long as Romans or 1 Corinthians, but it's longer than, say, Colossians or any of the other prison epistles. It's longer than any of the pastoral epistles. We might think that Paul would indulge himself a little bit in giving us a long, kind of drawn-out goodbye. But we saw last week... There's none of these personal greetings. There's none of this detail stuff. It's punchy, it's tight, and it is a short conclusion to the letter. And we see him continuing that in these two verses of benediction. Now, maybe it's because he remembered that awkward, long, drawn-out goodbye in person that he decides to keep it short here. I don't know. What I do know is that Paul, in all of his epistles, all of his letters in the New Testament, takes the standard, what was called the epistolary format, the way that you'd put a letter together, tweaks it and turns it toward a Christian use. So at the beginning, the salutation. Normally, a Jewish letter would start with shalom, which means hello, goodbye, peace, that kind of thing, right? It's a greeting that means wholeness. It's wishing that upon you. Everything is as it should be. Ness. He takes that and incorporates it. And then he takes the normal Greek greeting, which is kairain, which means kind of joyful greetings. 
And he Christianizes that to the very similar sounding charis, which means grace. He says grace and peace. That's normally what he does. And in the same way, he takes the, the final greeting, the goodbye, the sign-off, and always just tweaks it a little bit to turn it into a benediction, a proclaiming of a blessing upon them. Now, normally in a secular letter, this would have been a wish for the recipient's health and happiness and well-being in general, maybe invoking the gods, maybe not, but either way, it would have just been like, I hope things go good for you, just like how we often will begin a letter, I hope this letter finds you well. They say, I hope this letter leaves you well, and you get better and better. Paul, however, instead of wishing for them earthly prosperity or even health, has bigger desires, more significant desires for them. And I think we can boil these down into just four key words here in these two verses. Peace, love and faith, and grace. Kind of three sections. There's peace, there's love with faith, or faith with love, and grace. I think it's telling what we wish for those people that we care about the most. Right? What do you wish for your close friends? What are your desires for your children as we bring them before God and say, God, this is what we want. Do I just want them to be happy no matter what? Happy in the moment? Content? Gratified? Or do I want something bigger for them? Do I want them to be rich, successful in their lives? Do I just want them to be healthy? Like when you say, do you want a boy or a girl? And someone says, I don't care. I just want them to be healthy. And it's like, that's a different category. You're confused. Boy or a girl is over here. Healthy is over here. You can be a boy and healthy. It happens. But what is it that we want? What is it that we desire? Well, Paul's desires for his churches are for peace, for love, faith, and grace. And I think it's interesting that at the very beginning of this passage, or this whole letter, rather, he, in his greeting, says he has a desire for them of grace and peace. And then at the end... He comes back to those same two terms, but they're backwards. It's almost like a mirror image, a bookend at the beginning and end of the letter. Now he's saying peace and grace with love and faith in between. And there's another difference here. He's speaking in the third person, meaning not saying for you, but for them. He begins with peace and says peace for the brothers. Peace be to the brethren in the King James Version. Instead of saying to you, he says to them. Now, some have suggested this is because Ephesians wasn't originally for the Ephesians. It was a circular letter to go around and go to all sorts of different pieces. I, I don't understand why if it's going to different churches, different places, different people, it can't still always say peace be to you. That doesn't make any sense to me. I think that something else is going on here. He is trying to emphasize the familial and unified aspect of the church because this has been at the heart of the book of Ephesians from the very beginning. And so when he says, peace be to the brothers, and I want you to look if you have the Pew Bible or if you have just about any translation, look down at the bottom, and you probably have a footnote that says, or brothers and sisters. That shouldn't be in the footnote. That should be in the text. The word that he uses here, Adolfois, it, it doesn't mean just brothers. If it's used in the plural, addressing mixed company, it means siblings. They wouldn't say brothers and sisters, it would be redundant. When you use the, the plural masculine, it could be both male and female together. Just how, like, if I say, hey, you guys, you're not like, well, what about us ladies? Now you're like, oh, he just still talks like he's 13. But 
but brothers and sisters. So he wants brothers and sisters to have peace. This is one of his final wishes for the church. This is how he starts his benediction, his closing. And it goes, I mean, all the way back to chapter 2, he's been emphasizing how we're all members of the same household, even though he hasn't used those words, brothers and sisters, very much. But he says, you're members in the same household, and you are then, therefore, to be at peace with each other. This is what this whole book has been about, taking two groups that were at odds with each other, where there was hostility, Jews and Gentiles, and saying, we're going to break down the wall in between, or rather, Christ has already broken it down, and the two become one. This is the first aspect of the blessing because this is the main theme of the letter. And it was their most pressing need at the time. They needed peace. And so he prays it upon them. Now for them, when they read, peace be to you, brothers, they don't have to think back over more than a year of sermon series to remember what he had said about peace. It's all fresh in their mind. They've just heard it. They remember what we saw in chapter 2. Let me read verses 14 to 17. You can read along if you like. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one, who has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. So we see here that when the death of Jesus caused the curtain in the temple to be torn in half from top to bottom, opening access to God, that the ripple effect of that went off and it it knocked down walls everywhere that would have been between people, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, ethnic walls, cultural walls, gender walls, all these things that were keeping people completely separate from each other and from God come tumbling down, and he wants them to see this. That's why I think it's important that we don't go back and undo a bunch of his work by saying, I just want peace for the brothers. The sisters are on their own. We don't want to knock down one wall and cement another one at the same time that Paul certainly did not intend. When he talks about those who are far off and those who are near, those who are far off, that's us, I think all of us, I don't know every one of you, but I'm a Gentile. My name is Zach and I'm a Gentile. Hi, Zach. Yeah, okay, so you're a Gentile probably. That means we were far off from God. Strangers to the promises, alienated from Israel. We were really far off. Christ came to preach peace to us. Those who are near, those were the Jews who came to faith. They were near. Jesus says to some, you're so close to eternal life. He calls to bring peace to them as well. Now, you may say, why why is it then that Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, and somebody's enemies will be their own household? What we see happening in Ephesians is those who have been put out of their houses, those who have been put out of their old lives because of their faith in Jesus, find a new household, a household of faith. So out of many comes literally one, that one that is rooted in Jesus Christ. In this case, he says out of the two peoples comes one people. Jew and Gentile, but you see these kind of walls coming down in many other settings as well, in many other contexts. In fact, many people have suggested the theme of Ephesians is that God is creating a new society. That's a little bit old-timey sounding, but I think it's on the right track. So for us then to go back to hostility, when he's knocked down the wall of hostility, is to essentially reject what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. 
In chapter 4, he tells them, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He wants them to be eager for peace. Not just to say that would be my preference, but to pursue it, to maintain it. Once you've got it, you don't just say, okay, everybody's happy. You've got to maintain it. That bond of peace, that unity of spirit, it's something that we have to be very intentional about fostering and building and keeping because the enemy will come in and step number one in dealing with a church is always divide and conquer. Build walls. Rebuild walls where Christ has knocked them down. We have to be on guard against that. So that's peace. Secondly, love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Love with faith. And this isn't two different things. He's trying to knock them out two at once. This is love united with faith. One thing, essentially. Or two sides of one coin. In many ways, love and faith are two aspects of the same thing within us. This is what James gets at when he says faith without works is dead. Right? Love is the law in the Bible. You boil it all the way down. Take all that law stuff in the Old Testament. It boils down to Ten Commandments. Then when they ask Jesus, how do we keep the law? What are the great commandments? He says, well, there's two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You could boil those two down just to love, right? Love God, love neighbor, love. That's the law. Many people try through their love then to get in good with God and find salvation. That's where their hope lies. I've sat at the bedside of a lifelong Christian who some of you know. And I always ask this question, even if it's going to offend them, when you stand before God, as it looks like you're going too soon, if God is to say, why should I let you into heaven, what will be your answer? And she said, because I've loved. I've loved so well. I said, I'm so sorry that you've been misled so long. That is not how you're going to find salvation. Not your love. That's keeping the law. So we have to realize these two things must go together. Yes, you, you can't have just faith that's dead, like I signed on the dotted line, I'm, I'm good, I've figured it all out, but it doesn't affect my life, I'm not full of love, I'm full of bitterness. That's not real faith. But we also can't just work, 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 even if it seems to come out of a place of softness and love and, and care for our fellow man without having it rooted in faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he is talking about here. Going back to Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What is it that makes him thank God for the Ephesians? Two things. Faith in Jesus, love for one another. Two sides of the same coin. And he's so thankful that those things are there. And he says to you, listen, you've already basically got the engine for peace within the church. Even though there is, you know, some hostility, there's some difficulty, there's some conflict. The engine of peace in the church is faith in Jesus and love for one another. Out of that will come peace. See, as I said, he's going through these things backwards. It's a mirror image of the beginning. If we wanted to look at this in a, a kind of progression, first comes grace. God moves first. Electing us from before the foundation of the earth, according to Paul here. Then would come faith, which is also a gift, love for God, and then peace both with God and with one another. He's going through it in the opposite direction because they're already saved. 
In chapter 2, we were saved by grace through faith. Remember that? Not by works, lest anyone should boast. In chapter 3, we, we read, By Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. And then in chapter 4, when he gets on this unity uh, kick, he says, remember, you're one faith, one Lord, one baptism. One faith. Even when we're talking about the faith, not just faith. We have to remember this is not an abstraction or some mystical thing floating around. I think that's how we think of faith today. Oh, faith is just sort of there, and I can't even define it. It's a part of who I am, or, or it's something that you inherit from your parents, or just sort of pick up in the ether. No, it's simple. It's personal trust. You have faith every time you get in your car and turn the ignition. Right? Remember on the firm? You've seen the firm, right? At the end, Tom Cruise, he's beat all the bad lawyers with it by running really weird. And then he, and he says, because I have angered the mob, I'm never going to turn on my ignition without sweating. Uh, and, and, you know, you don't trust that thing if you have reason not to trust it. We have every reason to trust that our cars won't explode when we turn them on, so we trust them. You have every reason to trust that I'm not going to you know, do something terrible right now. Like, for example, like we saw yesterday at the Renaissance Fair, dump lamp oil all over on the chancel and light it on fire and start juggling knives. That would be weird. You trust that I won't. But on the positive side, you trust that your loved ones will look out for your interests and care for you and tell you the truth. You trust that your fellow church members will pray for you when they say they will. We know that these people will let us down, but we choose to trust. Well, faith is personal trust in a God who will never let you down. It's not simply believing a list of doctrines, although those are important, but rather believing in a person, the way a child trusts his father and mother. That is the kind of trust that we have if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Not just believe the doctrine that he's trustworthy. Not just believe that he has accomplished something on the cross and done something in raising from the dead. But we have to take the medicine, as it were. It's one thing to say, yeah, I believe that medicine could save lives. I believe that I probably need that medicine. Yeah, I'm in trouble without it. It's something entirely else to put it in your body and show that trust. It's, it's like the difference between saying, I believe in the concept of self-driving cars. I'm never getting in one. Robots driving me around at high speeds? It's not happening. True faith will give rise to an ever-rising love of God. And that's why he marries these two together. You can't have true faith that will not be accompanied by love. First for God, and then spilling out love for neighbor. Even love for our enemies. And love that doesn't come from faith will never endure. It's not true agape love. It's not self-giving love. It is in some sense self-seeking love. Back in chapter 3, verse 17, Paul prayed, quote, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. He's got these two things again, faith and love. Christ is, is dwelling in our hearts through faith. We are rooted and grounded in love. And so these two things can't be separated from one another, even though it's so often people try. I hear again and again and again from the world, well, you know, all religions basically teach the same thing. Love people, right? The golden rule. We can probably get rid of all the dogmas and all the details of all the individual religions and views and just say, can't we all just agree that's basically it? Love. 
well, we can all agree that love is basically the law, but we've broken the law and are therefore separated from God. When someone says, forget all the doctrines and creeds, all you need is love, ironically, they've made a creed. All you need is love is a creed. It's a bad one. It's like the Beatles instead of the Council of Chalcedon, but it is a creed. If we just focus on love devoid of real faith in a real object, we are going to find ourselves in the very same state that Adam and Eve were in after they had been banished from the garden. Without faith in those doctrines, including the, the fact that Christ died on a cross and rose again, without faith in the person of Jesus, trusting him to save us from our sin, you have no prayer of attaining that kind of love anyway. Maybe all you need is love, but you can't get it apart from faith. Religion, some say, it's love God, love neighbor. And like we said, that is how Jesus boiled down the law. But in the Sermon on the Mount, again and again, he pointed out, you can't keep the law. You've heard that it said, do not murder. I'm telling you, if you hate your brother in your heart, even for a second, that's murder in God's eyes. You've heard that it said, do not commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. You've broken the law. Now, what have you got for a sinner like me? That's when the gospel comes into play. That Christ died on a cross and rose again. That faith by which our sins are forgiven by grace through faith gives rise to great love. Remember what Jesus said about the woman with the bad reputation, the woman of ill repute who came in and washed his feet, and all the Pharisees were grossed out. They said, why would you let her touch your feet? He said, this woman is filled with love. She's been forgiven much, therefore she loves much. She loves better than you guys who think that you don't need to be forgiven at all. They didn't receive it, but that's essentially the message he had for them. There's only one way then for our sins to be washed away, there's only one way for us to be filled with the kind of love that actually honors God, the kind of love that he demands of us, and that is to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. I've got water here. There's some ice. Did you put ice in my water today? What a good guy. If I wanted to melt the ice, I could just wait, right? It would melt. But if I wanted to boil this water, there's only one way. I've got to apply some heat. And if you want to have the kind of love that we read about in the scriptures, if you want to see the kind of love that makes walls fall down rather than be built up, there's only one way to it, and that is the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's putting our faith in him. That's the only way to melt our hearts of stone, melt our desire to serve and love selflessly, to be able to turn from ourselves and pursuit of ourselves. I'm sure there's someone here still secretly thinking they can stir themselves up without faith in Jesus, without death to self, without turning away from the old and embracing the new. To get the, the old passions going through emotionalism or willpower or some nebulous spirituality to a point of having this love without faith, without dying to ourselves, without turning from our sin, and it cannot happen. Oswald Chambers, I think, when he, when he was uh, reflecting on this passage, wrote, Beware of anything that competes with loyalty to Jesus Christ. The greatest competitor of devotion to Jesus is service for him. I think so often we find ourselves doggedly trying to reach a goal, even a good goal, even a churchy goal, that it distracts us from our devotion to God and our love for him. Where was it that the parents of Jesus lost him? At church. Not the last people to lose Jesus 
at church. When we come together, we need then to remember why we're here. That God came and took on flesh, walked amongst us, died on a cross, rose again, that we might have eternal life. And that we might have life more abundant. And that we might serve Him as His disciples. What does this stirring up of your own love, your own devotion, religious zeal look like? Trying to attain it apart from faith? Well, it looks like Paul, before his Damascus Road experience, where he is saying, I have all the zeal in the world and I love God so much that I will persecute the church, that I will harden myself to the gospel, that I will oppose Christ rather than embrace him. If anything, religion without grace draws us further away from our creator, not closer to him. But what does it look like for faith to work itself out through love, as we read in Galatians 5? Well, the massive change we see in Paul's life, the moment he's knocked down, loses his sight, is dragged to a house in Damascus, and God's man, Ananias, comes, preaches the gospel to him, causes the scales to fall from his eyes, and he's born again. Then, out of this new love for God, married and unified with faith, comes love for his fellow man. Ephesians 1, we read, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In Ephesians 2, we read, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Hey, a great segue to the last thing he hopes for these people, which is grace. In fact, woodenly, we would translate it, The grace be with you all. That definite article is there, meaning it's a definite concept, a defined concept. Not any grace, a grace, not grace in general as just a notion, but the grace. What grace? He's talking about the grace he's been talking about this whole time. Going back to Ephesians 2, probably the most famous passage, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you are saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is something God has done. This is unwarranted favor. This is God looking at those who deserve his eternal punishment and giving them eternal blessing and paying the ultimate price by paying our sin debt on a cross. He started this whole letter with grace to you. But now the idea of grace at the end of the letter means a lot more to these Ephesians than it did at the beginning because they've seen it sussed out. And again, this is in the third person. It's not grace to you, but rather grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So this at the same time is insanely exclusive and insanely inclusive. All who love Jesus. This is not some inner circle. This is not some elite group. This is not some uh, clergy up here, everyone else down here thing that develops later in history. Rather, this is everyone. Everyone who, who loves Jesus. And yet the grace that he is wishing upon the recipients is only for those who do love him and love him with love incorruptible. Loving Jesus, then, is the thing that sets us apart as Christians. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments, Jesus said. But if you don't love him, even if you obey his commandments, you are not receiving his grace. In 1 Corinthians 16, just before he says grace to you, second person, Paul writes, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Again, apart from loving Jesus, truly loving him, we are still in our sins. I had a prof named Dr. Bustrom 
in both Bible college and seminary. He was, a, he was a great guy. He used to be a missionary in Kenya. And he used to always introduce himself at the beginning of every class saying, my name is Philip and I love Jesus as my Savior. And then he would explain to us that in Kenya and amongst his missionary friends and the people to whom he ministered, that is how everyone would introduce themselves to other Christians. My name is Zach and I love Jesus as my Savior. That, if you need to know anything about me, that's the thing. He's my Savior, and I love Him as my Savior. And I think this benediction here invites all who hear it, all who read it, to come and become part of that group that is receiving grace by loving Jesus as their Savior. And I want to look then, just two more quick things, the last word and the first love. The last word here, it's translated in all sorts of different ways, but it describes the kind of love which we have for Jesus. The, the word in the King James is, who love Jesus Christ in sincerity. I think this is too weak, not even really barking up the right tree, let alone going far enough up the tree. In sincerity means, oh no, I really love him sincerely. Yeah, I'm, I'm not lying to myself. That's not what this word means at all. This is a word that means immortality. In the King James uh, sincerity in the ESV, it says, all who love Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That's getting an awful lot closer to the meaning. In 1 Corinthians, it's described as imperishable, an imperishable crown as contrasted to the laurel wreath crown that you would get if you won a race. That would immediately start to kind of break down and get old and, and crack and, and you'd throw it out eventually because it was perishable. Makes me think of perishable and non-perishable foods. Weirdly, all of which are perishable. You know that when you ask for donations of non-perishable food items and everyone brings their expired non-perishable food items and you say, it doesn't really mean it can never perish. But this love is truly imperishable. It cannot perish. It refers to something eternal, something that can't be corrupted, something that is not given to decay. I think the NIV gets closer with those who love Jesus Christ with an undying love. And again, the ESV, praise be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. We have to remember, though, that it's incorruptibility, it's eternality. It's not in us, rather it's in him. That's how it can be the last word in this book. This letter begins with God choosing us in love before the foundation of the earth and ends with us loving him for all eternity with a love incorruptible. A love that never fades, never expires, never decays. It doesn't have a shelf life. It doesn't have a half life. It is eternal love. And, and that has to be rooted in an eternal God. That's the last word of the book of Ephesians. But I think I want to remind you of one more thing, and that is the first love in the church at Ephesus. Because this is the very same congregation to whom Jesus was writing a letter in Revelation 2, when he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these words. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
They've lost and turned from their first love. He calls them back to the things they did at first, reminding us again that love is a verb. It's stuff we do, not something that we feel. And he says, get back to that first love. These people whom he has ended the letter, the last word of the letter, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love eternal, undying love, incorruptible love. They've lost their first love. They haven't been on guard to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. They've let it slide. And the warning from Jesus is that if they do not return to their first love, He will remove their lampstand from His midst. St. Paul wants all of his brothers and sisters in Christ to experience these things more and more as a deeper and deeper reality in their lives. This opens up God's grace to all who love Jesus, all who want to be in His family. To the author, who is a Pharisee, a really religious guy with some power and clout at first, and also a Roman citizen who could have had a really nice life had he chosen to. It opens it to the the couriers who bring the letter along, both Tychicus, who we talked about last week, and Onesimus, who himself is a slave. And they're bringing the letter to a rich landowner. It opens it to the recipients in Ephesus, both Jew and Gentile. All of them love Jesus, and all are called by faith with love, and love with faith to love Jesus with love that is incorruptible. Now, to make sure I don't just keep going around and around looking for an exit from this sermon and sermon series, let me just throw down the smoke bomb and close with these words. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, do it today. Put your faith in Him because apart from Jesus, there is no way to find the road to heaven. There is no way to find salvation. There is no way to find the love that you would need to do enough good where it outbalances the wicked that you've done so that you say, I think I'll be all right when I stand before God. I can talk really well. Apart from faith in Him, prompted by grace from Him, there is no salvation. We have to put our faith in Him. And when we have, we have to remember that we are one. That is the... That is the theme of the book of Ephesians. That we have unity of spirit and the bond of peace. Free, but bound by peace. That we have turned from our old lives, sometimes from our old friends and our old families even, who have rejected us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. That was the situation for many in Ephesus. And now are clinging to one another. They love one another. They love God with a love that is eternal and incorruptible. It is rooted not in their own hearts, but in the heart of God from eternity past. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Ephesians. I pray, Lord, that you would impress on our hearts the truths that are contained in this book. That it wouldn't be something that now we turn the page on it, it's behind us. But Lord, you would draw us back into it to reread it now after a year-long study having opened our eyes to many of the the details in it and many of the themes in it and many of the words that are used in their significance, Lord, that we would read it remembering the context and what's going on in the world at the time, what's going on in Ephesus. And Lord, you would help us then to bridge that context to our world and apply these truths to our lives. That, Lord, the book of Ephesians would be for us a way to, to root ourselves in Jesus Christ 
A way to remember that in a world where there is hostility, where there are more and more walls being built up rather than being torn down, that, Lord, we have unity in Christ. We have the bond of peace. We have access to you. We are saved by grace, through faith, not of works, so that none of us can boast. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.